All right. So if you want to study along with us, we're going to take a bit of a detour from what you have been doing, studying, I think it's the book of John, and we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I don't know if you've ever studied the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a really interesting book. Uh, This morning, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verses 1 through 15. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there, a Bible app. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, the books are found in the table of contents. The big numbers, three, that's a chapter. The small numbers are verses. That's 1 through 15. That's where we're going to be. And uh, Ecclesiastes is really unique. If you've ever read it, it's one of the books that you get into and you're like, wow, this is really different. This is different than what comes before. It's different than what comes after it. It's a complicated book of the Bible. It's a highly stylized and poetic book. And it's really different than the other books in the Bible. It's, it's a unique kind of book. It's different than the kind of literature or memoir or historical narratives you often find in Scripture. And what's really interesting about the book of Ecclesiastes is it has a really somber tone, almost a negative tone. Uh, the main voice, he's called the preacher, uh, and he laments what he sees as vanity or the fleeting nature of a meaningless life. The book, it opens with these really sunny, happy lines. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil the sun, the, all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Encouraging, right? How, how about this at the close of chapter one? I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. Not the most encouraging book of the Bible, right? And in this darker tone, it continues, and the author shows again and again how life on earth, the things that we value, work, power, fairness, pleasure, if that's all that there is in life, then he argues that this world that we live in is short, it's meaningless, and it's disappointing. So yes, there are momentary joys, there's times of relief, there's delights, there's a great meal, there's a pleasing relationship, but if these 60 to 80 years is all that we have, all we have to look forward to, then it's a little deflating and depressing to the author of Ecclesiastes. And maybe you've felt that way, probably not all the time. It's probably not what you lead with or put on Instagram. Uh, but when you can't sleep in the middle of the night, when uh, you come back from vacation that you were so hoping was going to change everything and your soul is still tired, when you change a, another diaper on a child that you love and that you thought would fulfill you and everything would be complete when you had that child, and yet you're still so freaking tired, when you realize that the relationship that you hoped for, that you swiped right for, that you thought would bring you so much delight and joy now feels like drudgery or boredom, when another date fails to satisfy, maybe you say to yourself, your own version of vanity of vanities, life is meaningless. Have you been there? It's funny, right? Sometimes we can feel our worst even after we've received the things we're most looking forward to a promotion, a vacation, a stable relationship. The, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes isn't someone who, who has like terrible circumstances in their life. That's not why he's somber. He, he's someone who has been dealt a really great hand. He's someone uh, who is exceedingly wealthy. He was powerful. Uh, in the book, you get the sense that all of his sexual desires have been fulfilled. He lacks nothing that he could want. He's wise, he's educated, no amazing experience has escaped him. Uh, He says in chapter 2, verse 9, he says this, Whatever my eyes desired, 
I did not keep from them. He has tasted deeply from all that life offers. And yet, still, the author, the the author of Ecclesiastes, when he considers life, he proclaims it again, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That is the dominant and clear, repetitive message in the book of Ecclesiastes. But if you read it and you study it, you learn there's more to the book. If you really gaze deeply and, and look at this book and read it, you realize that the author is an artist. And this artist, he is creating something really profound, a masterpiece with this book. There's a deeper truth, a more profound beauty that they're leading the reader towards through this poetry. Uh, It's a truth that doesn't come easily. The reader is going to have to work to understand it. That's part of what we're going to do today. Uh, It's said sometimes of modern art, like if you were to go to the MoMA, uh, that these are works that do not give up their message easily. You don't just walk into the MoMA and see like a golden trash can with you know, like a flamingo on top of it, and be like, I get it. That's deep. No, there's some context. You have to think about it. There's something going on. And and so modern art is like that. And uh, the the, the meaning isn't really apparent. It's not obvious. The the beauty or the truth of this kind of art, it might change and grow deeper as the viewer looks more closely or reflects on it over time. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is like. Uh, There's this there's this uh, Christian uh, wonderful piece of art called The Clock. Um, Christian Marclay is the artist, and it's, it's this really fantastic uh, piece of uh, film, and it's a 24-hour movie. Uh, it's been hosted at museums all over the world, including the SF MoMA in 2013. It's been at the Tate Modern in London. It's this strange, bizarre, uh, day-long film, and there's a really good friend of mine, and he considers it genuinely like the most profound thing he's ever seen. No one ever watches the full 24 hours. You go in and watch a few hours of it, and, and, and he really considers it like the most amazing thing he's ever seen in his life. Uh, it, it's this, the, the clock is really interesting, and, and I was almost going to show a clip of it, but my wife thinks it's too weird, and so I, I didn't want to do it. Um, but if you go into, so, so it's basically, how to explain this, um, it is a movie that is uh, synchronized to time that are in clips of movies. So like thousands and thousands uh, of, of clips or, or moments from different films throughout like over 100 years uh, that have a picture of a clock in it or a time or a reference to time. A character might say, oh, I'll see you at 2.15. Or in the background, there might be a clock. And whatever time that you go in to see this movie is the time that's playing. So if you go in at 4.15, somewhere in that 30-second to minute-long clip, there'll be a a reference to 4.15. It might be in the background. It might be said 4.16, 4.17, 4.18, for 24 hours. If you watch the film, this this idea goes on forever, and it jumps from genre, black and white films, color films, all different things. It's this disorienting experience that you have. And one layer, if you were to watch this, this film, that you would experience is that first, it's like, there's a lot of movies. How did this person find clips of every single minute of the day? That's the first thing you experience when you look at something like the clock. Wow, we have a lot of film. Uh, and, and it kind of encourages the viewer to sort of calm down, slow down, and be aware of time. But the, the artist, is really interesting, he says there's sort of a second layer of meaning that he was hoping to portray. And he says that his film is a memento mori. You even know what that is. Anyone take art history? Uh, it's Latin for remember, you must die. Memento mori, remember, you must die. And it's actually a really common uh, practice that's found in art, in literature, in philosophy, in painting. And it's a way of remembering that life is short, that much of life is like the author of Ecclesiastes proclaims vanity. 
Memento Mori, they're works that focus on time and on death. And in doing this, they help us better live and understand the true meaning of life. You'll find examples of Memento Mori in medieval art. I think we have some pictures that are going to come up. Often it's people staring at skulls, like this guy right here. This lady here, skull, point, look at it. Or this wonderful family photo, right? Family picture <laughs> with a skull. And the last one, my favorite here, time, death, beauty. The Mexican holiday, Dia de las Muertes, some of you might have Latino background, uh, it's a festival version of a memento mori. It's a kind of practice that's found in all different cultures and religions, and it's a call to remember that death comes for us all, that life is short, and that we should therefore focus on the most important things, love, family, simple pleasures. And so we'll see some pictures of Dia de las Muertes if you've never seen that. Really interesting, right? And, and a lot of people, if they're unfamiliar with this, that their, their first experience is that this is just sort of a weird holiday that they're like, why are we so fixated on death? But as you see the bright colors and the further reflection, a second layer you see that this festival is actually, uh, it, it, it is, is a value of family, it is a value of life and a celebration, a connecting with ancestors, an honoring of those who've gone before. And the last level, though, if you kind of think of it in, in another layer, a deeper layer, is that Dia de los Muertos reflects a longing the bright colors, the, the fixation on death, a longing to live beyond the grave, to be reconciled to those that you've loved. It reveals a longing for eternity. And, and I think these same layers are true with a book like the book of Ecclesiastes. They're true of our text today. And so as we look at this text that I'm about to read, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15, we're going to look at it in three layers, three passes, three ways of understanding this text. Uh, and, and I think that as we do that, that God will understand that God has a meaning and a message beyond what we might have first thought when we first read it. So the first layer, layer one, if you're a note taker, life is seasonal. Life is seasonal. Uh, you'd see this in verse 1 through 8 and verses 12 through 13. Uh, the, the section, this text, it opens with these words. It says this, for everything there is a season and, for, and, and a time for everything, every matter under heaven. And then we get this long list of 14 seasons, 14 cycles that happen as we experience and observe life. Broadly speaking, you could consider these sort of a positive and a negative, an optimistic and a pessimistic. Here they are in chart form. Let me read the text. This is Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. I think for most of us, we find ourselves gravitating toward one side or the other. Uh, if we're on one side, we might be optimistic, glass half full people, or on the other side, we might be negative. If you're like, yeah, this is what life is like, you might be more pessimistic. And the truth is we need both of those perspectives, right? We need the positive and the negative. We need to affirm that both of these areas are real, and together they, they, they paint an accurate picture of reality. Uh, a, problem, a person that just sees from one of these perspectives, right, that's always positive, that everything's always going great, that, you know, everything's always happy, that person is lying, right? We know that. 
And then the person that's always on this side that only sees the negative, that everything's always terrible, there's always something to complain about, that person just needs a hug, right? We, we know that. But, but seriously, though, we put these two perspectives together, and it's like seeing with both eyes open. We need two eyes, literally two different perspectives to see well. If we just use one eye, we, we have some sense of reality, but it's flat, it's distorted, it's not true. We need both eyes to see depth, to gauge movement, to fully see and understand. And so the author of Ecclesiastes, it encourages us to open our eyes, to see reality and to see life for what it really is, both the positive and the negative. And, and so besides these categories, though, on the surface level our, our level, our first layer of meaning can seem almost obvious, right? Life is seasonal. It has seasons and cycles. There's an ebb and a flow. There's good times. There's bad times. And we need to acknowledge that these are seasons. It's, it's sort of an obvious truth, Right? In our geography, there's winter, spring, summer, fall. Those seasons matter, right? If you fail to recognize what season of life you are in, you're going to suffer the consequences. Uh, if you wear a swimming suit out in the middle of winter in a cold place, you and those around you are going to be uncomfortable. Uh, it's, it's a physical reality, right? But it's also true in relationships. It's true as we mature and we grow as humans. You know, imagine if you're a farmer, you ignore the seasons, you plant seeds whenever you want, you try to harvest in the middle of winter. If this is how you live as a farmer, what kind of, uh, not, not recognizing the season that you're in, what, what kind of harvest do you think you're going to produce? What kind of crop are you going to get? Yeah, not a very good one, right? Nothing at all. And we can recognize this when we think about agriculture, when we think about the natural realm, but what about the rest of our lives? What season of life are you in professionally at work? Is it spring? where you're striving and striving to prove yourself? Is it summer when you need to start pacing yourself so you can make a sustained impact over time? Is it fall or winter and you need to give up responsibility to someone else, empower someone else, move on to the next challenge? Or how about relationships, right? Uh, relationally, are you in a time that you need to be sowing into new friendships? Maybe it's going to be a while before you harvest the, the fruit of that sowing. You know, one thing that's interesting in San Francisco, I meet so many people that are new to the city or uh, people whose friends have moved, they're long-timers, their friends have moved away and they feel lonely and isolated and they're frustrated because they, they want the harvest but they haven't sowed into those relationships. What season are you in relationally? In terms of your own personal maturity, what season are you in? Are you still living like an adolescent? Are you ignoring that the season has changed? Are you still depending on your parents when you start need to living independently and preparing to be the kind of person that can be depended upon? Are you in that middle season of life? This is where I am in, where you have younger kids and you need to recognize the season's not coming around. You need to prioritize family over work because your kids aren't going to be home forever. That's the season that I'm in. Or maybe some of you are older, need to enjoy the harvest that your life has produced. Time to step back from responsibilities. You know, eventually as we reach old age, it becomes a season to give up independence, to plant our final seeds, ones that we're never even going to see come to harvest, make those investments. It's really interesting to me that when people are young, they need to be goaded and encouraged into accepting responsibility. But when we're old, we cling to responsibility and we never want to give it up. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had to convince, like, grandma to stop driving. Has anyone had to do that? And she hasn't, like, been able to see for five years, but she's still driving. <laughs> it's tough, right? Whatever our age, our stage of life, it's critical that we recognize, first of all, that life has seasons, those seasons change, and secondly, we need to know what season we're in. Uh, I love one author, he said this, he said, an unwillingness to recognize uh, and surrender to what time it is within the season that attends us can be harmful to us. Life is seasonal. 
We need to know what season we're in. We need to remember that. All right, let's move to our second point, layer two. Man is temporary, frustrated, and lost. Man is temporary, frustrated, and lost. As we look more deeply at this section of Scripture, we realize that this text is not just this ode to the seasonality of life. It's not just a celebration of seasons. Uh, Maybe you've heard the hippie version of this song that has these words. Uh, It was popular in San Francisco by the band called The Birds in the 1960s. It's a very free-spirited song. We're going to play like 45 seconds of it. It's a very happy song. Can I just imagine like the guy with the guitar? Yeah. There was music in the 60s. All right, we can be enough of that. We would be good. It's this very happy song, right? But as we examine the second layer of text, of this text, we realize a darker truth. Uh, Beginning in verse 9, what comes right after that long uh, list that we read uh, is actually probably the last line of a poem that began in verses 1 through 8. Our modern translations, if you look at them, they kind of separate these two texts, but that's not actually the case in the Hebrew. If you, if, you look at, if you look at this and you imagine that this is how that, a time, a, a time for this, a season for that, uh, ended with this. What gain has the worker from his toil? That's verse 9. Changes the meaning of it a bit, right? Or as the author continues, verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. If you remember when the author mentioned the business of God that, for, that people are busy with, he says that it's an unhappy business. So there's this long, a season for this, a season for that. What do you gain from this unhappy business that God has given you to be busy with? There's a more challenging layer that we uncover as we dig deeper into these words. Uh, One commentator, he writes, he says this, it's a mistake to extract these verses, one through eight, that's the poem, from the whole of the chapter as is often done, and think they can have their real meaning displayed without looking at how the preacher follows them. The poetry is setting up a problem that the prose is going to seek to resolve. What is that problem? It's this, that the cyclical, seasonal nature of life is tyrannical, and we long to escape it. Yes, we can enjoy simple pleasures, but isn't there more? If all of life is this ebb and flow, this cycle of positive, of negative, of life and death, are we just stuck on an endless loop? Am I just going through days and nights like millions of others who've gone before me, who will go after me, I like all of them, who will eventually die and be forgotten. Is that all there is? I don't know if you guys, uh, some of you guys are probably too young to remember, but uh, maybe you've seen, it's kind of a classic movie, Groundhog Day. Has anyone seen Groundhog Day with Bill Murray? It's also a Broadway play. It's a short story. There's a number of ways you can see Groundhog Day. But the, the context is this guy, this weatherman, Phil Connors, and uh, it's, it's, it's an idea that he gets stuck living in the same day, Groundhog Day, over and over and over. He wakes up every morning, it's always February 2nd, Sonny and Cher's cheery song, I've got you, babe, dun, 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 wakes him up at 6 a.m. every morning. And, and Phil lives time and time again this, again this same February 2nd. And at first he's disoriented, he's scared, and then he's exhilarated. He's just like so excited. He realizes he can do whatever he wants. 
He can commit crimes. He can seduce women. He can treat people however he pleases. And yet, if you follow the movie, this begins to disappoint him over time. This cycle of living the same day over and over and over wears him down. And eventually, he's depressed, and he tries to take his own life to get out of the cycle, but he can't. Whenever he dies, which he does again and again in comical, dark fashion, he wakes up again. I've got you, babe, dun-dun, dun-dun. I've got you, babe, dun-dun, dun-dun. He can't escape. The problem that this movie and this poem is establishing is that we as humans long for more than the cyclical life. We are living a longer version of our own Groundhog Day, but eventually we want to escape. There has to be more, right? We want to live forever. We long for a better eternity, but as Ecclesiastes reminds us, this isn't possible. Memento mori, remember you're going to die. Vanity of vanities. Every person deep in their soul, I think, really does live with a kind of frustration. We long for transcendence. We want to escape the grind of life, but we can't seem to figure out how to do it. We long for more, but we're lost and we can't find our way. So we look for little ways to get a fix of something bigger and better. And here the author of Ecclesiastes, he puts this this, this concept. He says in verse 11, he says this, that God, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Do you pick up the frustration there? The author claims God put eternity in our hearts, a desire for like transcendence, for an eternal life, and yet we cannot find out what God is up to. However hard we try, we cannot find out what our hearts are so deeply longing for apart from him. And as we keep reading, about, think about this frustration, keep reading. This is just going through the verses. This is verses 12 and 13. I perceive there is nothing better for them than to be joyful, to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So here's where the author and through us uh, and through his perspectives, we the readers, find ourselves. We, we long for eternity. We long for transcendence, but we can't figure out how to get it. The best thing we can do then is live moral lives, try to be good people, eat, drink, take simple pleasure in the toil that our lives actually are. Isn't that really, if you boil it all down, isn't that the best that a purely secular life can hope for? Someone that doesn't believe in God or eternity, isn't that the the best life they can hope for? Be good, enjoy yourself when you can, see your toil for what it is, eat, drink, and marry, be merry, tomorrow we die. What the author has done in this text is just deconstructed the illusions and boiled life down to its basic meaning if there is no God and no hope of eternity. Eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die. This is an incredibly sobering view of reality, and at least for me, it's spectacularly unsatisfying. But it's in this disappointment, this honest place of frustration, that I think our deepest desires for eternity when they're unmet in this dark place when we're really honest about what a world looks like if there is no God, we find the seeds of hope. C.S. Lewis, he says this, if I find myself, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures can satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. 
Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they're only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. All right, guys, here's the final layer, the deepest level of truth, layer three. God is eternal, and He is seeking. God is eternal, and He is seeking. Let's keep reading our text. This is verse 14. It says this, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. And the author now at this point is beginning to kind of show their hand. He's beginning to give up this deepest truth. He contrasts the temporary, cyclical, frustrated life of man with this eternal work and life of God. What man longs for, God... My better. Sorry, guys. It's this little mustache, apparently. Um, Thank you. God has done it. He lives out of that cycle, outside of the ebb and the flow, outside of the rhythm of life and death. And when people recognize this difference, they fear Him. And biblically, if you know that word fear, it's less about terror and it's more about respect. And so the author basically paints God as eternal, transcendent, worthy of our respect and our reverence. He is the conqueror of death whose work lasts forever. He's outside of that that tyranny of time. And let's read our final passage, verse 15, final verse. It says, that which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. The stakes have been set. They cannot be changed. Man is temporary, frustrated, and lost. And yet, God seeks what has been driven away. When I studied this passage, those words just jumped out. They're one of the things you underline them. I was like, what does that mean? God seeks what is driven away. Well, if you're familiar with the Bible, or if you turn to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, there's this story of how mankind became alienated from God, how we got stuck in this toil of life and this tyranny of life cycles. And so the short version of this story is that man and woman, Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God, They chose to attempt to satisfy their delights and their desire for pleasure and power in rebellion against God instead of finding satisfaction for those desires in relationship with God. And so God, holy and perfect, eternal, drove them out of the garden, out into a world now broken by their sin. You can read it for yourself, Genesis 3.23. It'll come up on the screen. Therefore God sent him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he has taken. He drove out the man. The author of Ecclesiastes is literally picking up the exact same themes and words and texts that Genesis 3 laid down. Because of sin, God drove mankind away, or he allowed us to drive ourselves away. Whatever it is, now we find ourselves lost, but God seeks what has been driven away. That is the good news, that since the beginning of mankind, we have been all been doing that exact same thing, right, what Adam and Eve are doing, seeking to satisfy our desires in something other than relationship with God. We all do it in different ways, but it's what we're all doing, running. And we now all live because of this and because of our sin, because of humanity's sin, frustrated, stuck in a cycle of an unsatisfying life that will ultimately lead in death. But again, what God seeks, what has been driven away. 
Uh, earlier this year, I was, I was putting my youngest son, uh, Stott, to bed, and he was four at the time, and he's a terrible sleeper, uh, and so he loves to have someone snuggle with him when he falls asleep. I know this is like, you're not supposed to do this. Just let him cry it out or whatever, but he, he won. And so uh, I'm laying with him and uh, in bed, and he's sweet, and he's quiet, and he's sometimes thoughtful at this time, and he asks me, he says, Dad, what does seek mean? Uh, and, I, and I'm kind of disoriented a little bit, and I'm like, like, the guys with the turbans, like Sikhs, you know, and I'm trying to kind of explain, you know, Indian, Northern Indian, and he's like, what are you talking about, you know? And, and then I realized, oh, you're not talking about like Sikhs, you're talking, you're talking about like some other kind of Sikh. And I told him, you know, to seek is to look for something, to try to find something. And he looked up to me, looked up, and he's like, oh, that's why they call it hide and seek. He just, he, he understood the hiding, but not the seeking. And, and we kept talking, and I'm thinking, this is a good teachable moment, you know, to tell them about God and faith. And so I'm like, hey, you know, the Bible says that when we seek God with all of our hearts, that we'll, we'll find Him. And he looks at me kind of strange, like quizzically, like, why? Like, God, Dad, God's everywhere. He's not hard to find. I love that kid. He could have preached a sermon for me. God is easy to find not just because he's omnipresent, not because we're looking so hard, but because he's not hiding from us. He is seeking us. He is seeking you. In God's holiness, he drove us away because of our sin. In his love, he comes after us and offers to bring us home. This is what Ecclesiastes is pointing us towards, and the rest of the Bible fills in the story. So many of us, we understand the hiding. We understand what it means to hide from God. But we don't understand the seeking, just like my son. We don't understand what it means both for us to seek God, but more than that, for him to be seeking us. To understand that there's a God who covers the gap between you and him. A God who is seeking you and offering you hope of eternity, escape from the tyranny of time, freedom from the grind of life under the sun. And this seeking God, he sent his son Jesus Jesus, who himself was this God eternal, he lived through all of the cycles of the human life. He died a human death, and yet Jesus conquered death. Resurrected from the dead, a work that will last forever, a work that cannot be undone. Jesus proved himself God greater than this life, able to free us from the sin that drove us away from God, the sin that traps us in this cyclical life able to forgive the sin that with, without with that forgiveness we would have ultimately death. We'd face ultimately face eternal death. Jesus, who talks about himself, he calls himself the eternal Alpha Omega, beginning and end. He's saying, I'm outside of time, who says of himself in Luke 19.10 that he came, what? To seek and to save the lost. Jesus is picking up that mission that God is saying he's doing here in Ecclesiastes to seek what has been driven away. God seeks what has been driven away, and he does that through Jesus Christ. He covers the distance between you and him. He seeks to bring you back to himself. That is the ultimate, deepest message of the book of Ecclesiastes, that God is eternal and that he is seeking you. And the question that that we're left with is, will we stop running? In our own way, whatever that looks like, running by seeking fulfillment in something that we know won't satisfy, running away from him because we're afraid of submitting or giving up something that we think is better than what he has to offer? Will we stop running? Will we allow ourselves to be found by him? This morning, I really plead with you, whatever is driving you away, has driven you away, guilt, shame, sin, fear, 
regret, ignorance, pride. God is not hard to find. He's seeking you, and we can be found today in Him. Let's pray.